Welcome to the User Experience of America podcast with today's special guests, content strategy, Dave and Rachel Lovinger, and User Experience Guru, Robert Stribling. Without further ado, here are your hosts, Wendy Lowender, Caucasian Psych, Kyle Outlaw. Sit back and enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to the inaugural episode of our new podcast, The UX of America. Uh, today we're going to be talking about all things user experience, and uh, just to set expectations, we'll likely digress into different topics such as politics, music, comics, video games. You get the idea. It's about redesigning America because everything that can be digital will be digital, as the founders of Razorfish liked to say. Uh, so, first of all, uh, my name's Kyle. Uh, I'm a designer of things on the internet. Um, I'm an unapologetic idealist. Um, I'm a slacktivist. I sign a lot of email petitions. <laughs> I'm a friend of animals. I donate to PETA. My dog's my best friend, etc. And my co-host is right here. And my co-host is Wendy Lau. And she is Canadian. She loves winter. Because she is a developer and therefore loves anything that is efficient and works well, Wendy is passionate about well-designed user experiences. She also loves analog photography and would prefer to spend time in the darkroom than interact with people. Is this true? This is true. How are you doing today? Uh, apologetic. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Well, happy Friday. Yes. Okay. Uh, and, and since you're from Canada, uh, how is Justin Bieber doing as Prime Minister up there? It's Justin Trudeau, oh. and he's going to legalize marijuana. Awesome. Hmm. Okay. Um, so let's meet our first guest. Uh, we have Rachel Lovinger. She is a content strategy director here at Razorfish. In fact, if you look up content strategy on Wikipedia, you will find her on that page. I'm probably reading the wrong bio, am I? No, this okay. is it. She has been on because <laughs> I created my version for you. For you, yeah. you put I just added something. Yeah, awesome. She has been on a never-ending quest to understand how people make sense of information and how to make it easier for them. In her spare time, she enjoys going to film festivals and traveling to far off places. Her partner, Jason Scott, is also really cool in his own right. I bet you two have some awesome conversations when you were home after a long day working in the internet coal mines. Rachel tweets well, and her handle is at rlovinger. Check it out. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for being on episode one of UX of America. Very excited to be here. Awesome. Okay, next up, Robert Stribley. He was born in Perth, Western Australia, but now has a dual citizenship. I did mm -hmm. not know that. That's For real. That's cool. Okay. I let you do that. Respect. <laughs> and enjoys the right to vote. Uh, he studied broad and, and, and you exercise that right to vote? I, I have. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do it this uh, November. Trust me. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Got to get it out there. Okay. He studied broadcast journalism and English education in college and worked in the community relations field before making the leap to designing things for the web, right before the dot-com bubble burst. He's working with the UX group uh, uh, at Razorfish, and he's been here almost 10 years now, uh, making him a quote-unquote grizzled veteran of sorts. In addition to all things web-related, he owns up to being a, journal, uh, a journalist, uh, working with politics, writing about politics and culture. Uh, you're a culture junkie, and also uh, you claim to have a growing obsession with privacy, security, and surveillance matters. And that's one of the things that we want to talk to you a lot Absolutely. about today, among other things like writing and superheroes. Cool. Uh, so follow Rob on Twitter, at Stribs. It's well worth your time. Um, okay, so uh, let's start with Rachel. So I want to, um, I want to start with uh, a question that I get 
uh, a lot, and that is what what is content strategy, and uh, how does it relate to user experience and digital media in general. Uh, well, let's talk about content for a second first. So in digital experiences, uh, content is basically the product that we're offering our users. It, I'm not just talking about like music and video and uh, all the text that has been digitized from other forms of media, but really everything we interact with in digital is has been abstracted to content. So like in real life, you might interact with like you all kinds of things. You drive a car and see how that feels, you try on a jacket, see if it fits you, you smell something delicious and you go, I want to eat that. Um, but in digital experiences, we just ha read about those things or we look at pictures of them or maybe we watch a video and then we just hope that some part of that, some sense of that experience comes through from interacting uh, with the content. So since content is such a critical part of, the, of our experience of things online, um, content strategy was a set of practices that have emerged to help make sure that that content of the experience is as useful and usable and delightful as the design and the interactions are. Um, this can include everything from like figuring out what types of content and topics are going to be of interest to users as well as um, making sure that the systems are set up so that authors can easily publish the content long after the site is launched or app or virtual reality game or whatever whatever the digital uh, medium happens to be but you know it's it's a full range of all of those things that you might do with content uh, is it safe to say that you are uh, kind of a pioneer in, in uh, you know we talked about you you're in the Wikipedia when you look up content strategy uh, could you, do you consider yourself a pioneer well, in content strategy? Uh, I will certainly say that when I started at my job as a content strategist, I had never heard of content strategy before. Uh, so I think in that sense, um, although I didn't realize it, I guess I was kind of a pioneer. But I, I think on the other hand, content strategy uh, really draws from a lot of other disciplines that existed before. So. It's not necessarily inventing a whole bunch of new practices. It's taking existing practices that are tried and true in the fields of like journalism and information science and um, uh, library science and all kinds of other practices and applying them to the way we handle digital content in digital experiences. Um, so it's, it's sort of like taking all of that stuff and putting a new lens on it. Uh, so how is the uh, how is content strategy? So you said you, you started uh, in, in your first role in content strategy was ten years ago. Is it? Mm -hmm. or yeah. Right? Okay. Here at Razorfish. Here at Razorfish. Cool. Um, and how how has the how has the field changed <laughs> well, since you started? At first, uh, a lot of it was just trying to get people to pay attention to their content early and often in the development of a project. You know, so a lot of it was just sort of banging the drum and saying like, hey. Don't forget about the content because frequently before that we would find, you know, we'd go through, we'd design a whole experience, and then at the very end, like the content was almost the afterthought. So at the beginning of content strategy, uh, it was really just getting people to put attention on it. And now that people, I think a lot of people, a lot of organizations are paying attention to it, 
uh, what we're seeing in the field is a lot more specialization taking place because as people start to uh, pay attention to their content, they understand the range of problems that they have. And some organizations have, uh, you know, problems that are more related to like editorial planning and how do we um, figure out what content to create and where to put it. And other organizations or other clients that we work with have different kinds of problems related to, uh, you know, the content structure and the content tagging and findability and things like that. So as, um, as we've got people to pay attention to it, people can sort of uh, split up their different skills and say, okay, I'm going to really focus on um, the editorial strategy or I'm going to really focus on the content that's in the product interface the sort of user experience content that the copy that supports the overall experience, or they you know focus on the CMS configuration and the author experience. So I know Wendy, you and I have talked about like what is content strategy, and I was trying to I was trying to explain it to you, and I think I failed miserably. But I mean, is this is this like like you're a coder, so like you know, yeah. does this does this like. Is this making sense for you? And, and yeah, it totally does. And it sounds like it's it's definitely a lot more than I thought it was. I, I really thought it was just organizing content and deciding what kind of content to put you know, in the medium that you want to present to the user. Um, but it, it sounds very, very interesting. And do you have like an example of something that you did recently that is a good, good example of content strategy that people wouldn't really know is content strategy? And you can white label the client. You can say like mm -hmm. white label company or behemoth or whatever. Well, actually let me um, talk a little bit about how I started in content strategy because I think like a lot of content strategists, I was probably doing content strategy before I realized that that's what it was called. And uh, my background was actually as kind of a presentation layer developer in a way. I was kind of self-taught but what I realized quickly, I was working for websites about um, magazines. And uh, what I realized very quickly was that in order to do what we wanted to be able to do with the website, we really had to dig into the structure of how the content was created and how it was tagged so that we could really create um, more immersive experiences with the content. And, and that led me down this path where I started really negotiating between um, what was possible with the technology, what the editors wanted to do, what the designers wanted to do, and what the business people wanted to do so that they could so that we could all find sort of the optimal way to meet those needs and understand what the limitations were, but also take advantage of the possibilities. And um, when I heard about this field called content strategy, I thought, oh, that sounds like it combines all these things that I'm already interested in. Um, and that's a lot of what I still do now. So on a lot of the projects I'm working on, I look at the designs and uh, try to understand what the requirements are uh, so that when we build a CMS, we can authors will be able to use it in the way that the design was intended. And what is content marketing? <laughs> and is it even ethical? <laughs> Uh, so uh, content marketing, I think, has more to do with marketing than content, in a way. Um, marketing, obviously, long predates digital, right? So 
Um, it's it's a field that's really expert at um, getting involved in whatever forms of communication or media people are paying attention to. So, of course, when digital came onto the scene, marketing wants to be part of digital. And just as all the rest of us realized how big a role content is in digital experiences, marketing people started realizing that was important too. So like while their first efforts of digital marketing looked a lot like traditional marketing, you might have banner ads or pre-roll on video, uh, they soon realized like people aren't paying attention to that stuff. And so the place that people are paying attention in digital experiences is to the content. And so content marketing is basically a way of saying how do we get our content more or how do we get our marketing messages more deeply embedded in the content um, through things like branded content and stuff like that. Is it ethical? I mean, I don't think it's unethical unless they're actively trying to hide the fact that it's marketing. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that people realize, like, you know, when you see something that's a BuzzFeed article that's sponsored by a particular brand or you see something like a um, guy jumping from space for Red Bull, like, Mm -hmm. you know that that's, you know what it is, but if you find it entertaining, you're not bothered by it. Uh, And that's, I think... You know, the the idea behind white hat content marketing is if we give people stuff that they like, they're not going to be bothered by the fact that it's um, from a brand. Where it's unethical is when they start to hide who's creating it and, um, and you don't know what the interests are, the business interests behind the content. So that's a new term I learned today, white hat content marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Rob, you you come from uh, you've done some you've I have hybrid yeah like, I'm kind of neither fish nor fowl I I mean I do a lot more um, information you're both art. fish and, and fowl. fish and fowl yeah <laughs> uh, or a mule or something combination like that I've always enjoyed doing both probably because of my journalism background I'm not a real journalist now I'm just more of a journalism junkie but um, you know I was an English major and writing and and all things communication really and so I have. Um, thought a lot about this content marketing and, and of course, native advertising being very uh, similar and a lot of overlap between those two things. And I think what Rachel pretty much nails there is the transparency of it. And I feel like this reached a critical mass in the last couple of years. It had been out there in one form or another for a while. But when a magazine as prestigious as Atlantic Monthly, now, of course, really referred to as the Atlantic Online, published what looked like an article about Scientology, and it was actually um, native advertising. And they they got a lot of heat for that. Um, And, um, you know, I think a lot of the conversation then is how do you present this native advertising to people or uh, content marketing so that it is transparent. Does that mean labeling it? Um, what? And, and I think depending on the platform you go to, uh, it's more or less transparent. And I really think you could undermine your brand significantly if you don't label it clearly. But also I think you need to find content that is appropriate to your brand. To, well, you know, doesn't want to be bland. Uh, to your brand. Have you seen bland? Either? Yeah, right. And I think the problem with Atlantic Monthly is it was a prestigious intellectual magazine for many decades, and all of a sudden they had a pro-Scientology, what looked like an article. And I would even go into, maybe this is a side um, conversation, but about the uh, contextual advertising that is now on sites like that, which undermines their brand too, which may even be labeled clearly as 
advertising. Well, so that's that's uh, what I'm curious about. Like, I, I'm not sure I understand the difference between what you're describing as contextual advertising and content marketing. Like, where where do you draw the line, or are they? Is there a lot of overlap, or, or what's, what's what's your opinion on that? It might be a problem that there is a lot of overlap, but I think when I'm thinking of, and Rachel might have a different definition, but specifically native advertising is when um, a piece of advertising or marketing looks like the content on the site. So that was, you know, the ads at the bottom are usually pretty clearly demarcated or in the right rail or even now taking over the page. But when you're looking at something, you think it's an article, you think it's an Instagram post, you think it's a Mashable article, and Mashable and BuzzFeed, I guess, are two that are huge on this right now. You don't always know that it's not just an article, it is an advertisement. And well, that's. I, I think that the problem occurs when um, mm -hmm. you're capitalizing, uh, or when an advertiser is capitali capitalizing on the reputation of a publication or of a person yes. mm -hmm. and not revealing that connection. So I've actually noticed recently, I think it's kind of funny, um, even in Amazon reviews, like I'll read a review for a product on Amazon and then at the bottom it says, I was given this product <laughs> for free for, in exchange for a fair and balanced review or something like that. Mm. So like if people are disclosing that, then then you know how, you know, what context to take it in. Mm. But if people are just, and this was an issue like with a lot of bloggers, um, you know, a few years back when blogging was like seen as the big influencer, um, people would be giving the product giving their products to bloggers in the hopes that they would write about them or or even paying them in exchange for writing about them mm -hmm. and and people were reading that not knowing that that was basically paid promotion and they're using the reputation and the following for that blog to reach an audience and, and that audience doesn't understand the transaction going on behind it so i mean do you think in many ways we might uh, some companies might be repeating these mistakes that with oh, sure. I mean, it's kind of the Wild West right now, right? Because there aren't a lot of particular standards set up. And so um, yeah. it, there's going to be people who intentionally blur, blur the lines. There's going to be people who accidentally blur the lines because they aren't thinking about, you know, the ramifications. or, right. or But, you know, I, I think as we continue down this path, like, standards will start to emerge um, yeah. that are going to be demanded by I mean the nice thing about all of this is that everything is very transparent so you know the thing with the Atlantic you could say that was terrible that that happened but because there's so much transparency with stuff that goes online like as soon as people realized it it was all over the place and it led to some important conversations that we're still having and I think you can put the onus to some degree on readers becoming more sophisticated in the future and recognizing um, this sort of thing but I do think you touch on the issue that the amazing thing about the web uh, and this isn't new but for the last decade or two is that everyone can be a publisher but the problem is also that everyone can be a publisher right. and not everyone um, understands the traditions if you will mm -hmm. not to sound <laughs> too overbearing about it but some really important things about transparency and how you frame content when you're presenting it and the difference between journalism and marketing mm -hmm. that they're two very distinct fields <laughs> And same with con copy development even versus marking potentially. Mm -hmm. Do you think the Atlantic uh, was a reputation damage by this? this uh, I mean, I, I think it was. I don't know if it was permanent, but I think that was... They, they, could, they could recover from that, but I think a lot of um, magazines that had pretty solid reputations have 
had an erosion of their brand that mm -hmm. was more gradual over the last few years as they start I presenting. Forbes, when I think yeah. of that, mm -hmm. like, you know, yeah. Forbes mm -hmm. used to have, a, I think, a much better yeah. reputation. And, uh, right. And it's not just the marketing or um, native advertising, it's the need to publish 24-7 mm -hmm. and have eyes on ads, even if those ads are clearly shown, uh, to have eyes on your site to make money because it's then, difficult to sorry, make money. And then now. The, so the quality of journalism sort of degrades because of the, the requirement for like getting stuff up there every hour. Potentially, or you, like I think of... There are people doing great stuff still. Like, oh, the Atlantic does great stuff. The New Republic, um, a lot of other organizations like this. But they have to mix in a lot of crap with it in order to get eyes on advertisements, I think. And so it's not that they're not still doing good stuff. It's just that there's now a difference in percentage of carefully thought out work versus let me get some eyes on some ads. Got it. Mm -hmm. So um, let's shift gears for a little mm -hmm. while um, and talk about comics. Woohoo! Rob, who is your favorite comic superhero? Oh, man. It's going to sound probably pretty obvious, but it has to be Batman, I think. Right. Yeah. kind of has to be Batman. Respect. Yeah. <laughs> and why is why? that? Um, you know, it, it goes back... Uh, I, I used to read a lot more comics than I do, but if I'm going to pick up one now, it probably would be Batman, maybe a couple of others. But I think it's that history. I think it's that he's rooted in a, a little bit more realism, as much as I love a lot of the other comic book characters. But um, you know, he's just a man. Well, just a human, <laughs> just a human, yeah, just a human who had uh, terrible things happen to him when he was younger. And, <laughs> that's right, and he overcame adversity. And a lot of the um, other ones who I might like too. I love Silver Surfer. I love Spider Man. I love Superman. But a lot of them have uh, an automatic edge by the fact that they have this uh, superhero quality that's given to them. Especially Superman. It's that. Um, so that uh, long traditional um, thing before this movie came out of uh, who who who's better, Superman or Batman? Well, Superman had all this given to him on a platter. You know, he was born that way, if you will. But Batman was born with a ton of money. That is true. And Superman had <laughs> Superman had true. his entire culture stolen from him. That's that's true also. So it just shows how you know you should respect all of the superheroes because they have their own. <laughs> yeah, so so uh, first of all, I just want to mention I, I like Iron Man. I've always liked Iron oh, Man. Oh, Iron Man but too. I think yeah. It's kind of uh, you know I don't think there would be an Iron Man without without Batman. Like, yeah. I, I almost think that 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 Tony Stark is sort of like um, Bruce Wayne for the military industrial complex yeah. for like the the Marvel version. Sure. Bat or Iron Man is the Mar Marvel version of Batman. Yeah, he's a product of the military-industrial complex. That's an interesting but, point. But uh, <laughs> I know you wrote a very interesting piece on Medium uh, on Batman. I, I saw Batman versus yeah. Superman, and actually... Um, I was pleasantly surprised because the bar for me was set so low on that movie. Like, yeah. like I heard it was like the worst. Like I saw Kevin Smith tweeting about how, <laughs> and Kevin Smith is actually friends with Ben Affleck, so uh, he's going to write bad reviews. Some real shade there. He and was, he loves Batman. And he loves Batman. Yeah. Yeah. And he said it was uh, uh, fucking humorless or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And so um, anyway, so I, the bar was down there, but um, I, I went to see it anyway, and I thought it was, even though there's no plot, you know, the plot's weird. Like, yeah. Why does Lex? 
Luther want to have these guys fight. But yeah. anyway, you, you've done a much deeper analysis of this when it gets into yeah. like Nietzsche. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that. I did. And to follow up with Wendy, though, I think I had to think about it because her response was so good about him having a leg up. I probably really <laughs> like him because he's a melancholy bastard, right? He's kind of this dark guy, and I identify with those kind of characters. So that's probably the truth. And, that and you live in Gotham. And I live in Gotham, and that probably reflects more on me uh, as I admit that. Um, but yeah, I, I watched the movie. I went in with um, kind of low expectations, too. Um, and it's not a great movie. I didn't really write a defense of the movie, but what I thought was there's more going on in here to give you know Zack Snyder his due, and I might not even like or agree with all of it, but it kept me intellectually engaged because I was like, oh, I see what he's trying to do. He's got this um, Nietzschean Superman, and he's got Batman, who is a human being, and uh, Superman is the epitome of what a human could be, although he's not human. Um, so it had these themes that I think are pretty clearly um, Zack Snyder's obsession with Nietzsche. Uh, there's a lot of God dropping there in there as well. Uh, there's probably anywhere between half a dozen, a dozen quotes um, from Lex Luthor about God and man, and then eventually leading to, you know, spoiler alert, the death of God. Um, and so I thought he was trying to pack all this stuff into the movie that is there, I think, and there is an examination of fascism in the way that both Batman and Superman handle the crime and the horrible things that are going on. Um, in the world. I think it's also very much like uh, the Dark Knight movies, a post-9-11 movie, and it's very hard to watch any of these movies lately, DC or Marvel, except for maybe Guardians of the Universe, because it takes place in a completely different <laughs> area, but a lot of these ones set on Earth are very post-9-11, and there's a lot of these mass destructions, and how do we handle it, and do we need surveillance? And this Zack Snyder movie, as well as the Chris Nolan one, both have that element of surveillance and watching people and how do we handle handle this. Um, and so, you know, I the thing with Zack Snyder, I felt like in the piece that I wrote, is I'm not sure he's anti-fascism. <laughs> I feel like he's <laughs> wrestling with fascism. And if you watch that, those movies and his other movies as well, that um, he's kind of fascinated with it, and I'm not sure which side he comes down on. Rachel, who do you like in well, I'm much more of a Marvel Comics uh, mm -hmm. fan, I would say. That's okay. Um, I mean, right. I, I watch the DC movies usually, no, although I haven't. I like Dark Horse, too. Yeah. Um, but, but really, I was, uh, when I was a pretty young kid, uh, my uncle dropped his keys in the snow, and I helped him find them. I helped him find his car keys. And to thank me, he gave me this book that was... A, it was called uh, Marvel Superhero Women, I think, and it was by Stanley, and it was like a collection of all different, uh, like short episodes about different um, superhero women in the Marvel universe. So it had like um, Hellcat was in there, and the Invisible Woman, and Medusa, and um, Black Widow, and a whole bunch of, I mean, some that I wouldn't be able to identify now, but uh, I just, like, studied that book, and I loved it, and then I think in college, I started, uh, someone introduced me to the X-Men, and I started reading that, and I've been reading X-Men pretty much ever since, um, so really into the X-Men, uh, I really like all the Avengers movies, love Guardians of the Galaxy, um, and I think, like, it's interesting, more, like, 
DC has more these individual people that stand out, and then they mm. might fight each other or whatever. But um, but Marvel is more focused on like these teams, even though like the, some of the Avengers they have their individual movies, but they're they're also really about like these team dynamics and stuff like that. Hmm. And yeah. oh no, okay. sorry, finish your thought. Well, um, I'm also really curious to see uh, what is it called Civil War. Oh, yeah. Which is probably going to touch on a lot of the same kind of themes as mm-hmm. Batman versus Superman, and so it'll be interesting to compare, you know, because I'm sure that's also about like one of them is into surveillance and tracking everybody, and one of them is into civil rights, and you know, who, where does that movie stand on those same issues? But mm-hmm. I think what's really what captures the imagination about comics is that all of these are very metaphorical for like real life problems but they take them to this kind of epic um level and so like the x-men is a lot about racism yeah right so it's like the mutants and people hate them just because they're mutants and they can't you know and then the mutants can be either good or bad doesn't uh it's not because they're mutants that they're good or bad and but they're constantly struggling with that perception and the original Superman comics reflected their time with the Great Wars and everything, especially World War right. II, I guess, as well. Yeah. So I think it makes sense that you know a lot of our feelings about the post nine eleven world would show up in these movies because it's like that's how we can process like the um, like we can't really process our, the, our feelings or, or our reaction to that at the human level. Like we almost have to elevate it to this epic level in order to really express like how strongly we feel about mm-hmm. some of these events. And are these themes also there um, in comic books in addition to the movies? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like if it's interesting with having read X-Men for decades to see like sometimes they're hated, sometimes they're liked, sometimes they turn against themselves and then they're like oh what have I done and you know so to see like the development over time of of um, those metaphors uh, they definitely reflect kind of like what's going on in the larger uh, in in real life I guess so the the only thing I, I, I hope that we're not at the point where Superhero movies are about to jump the shark. It seems like there's one coming out every month. Yeah, and everyone has a universe. So there's the Marvel universe, and now there's the DC universe, and and DC is like playing catch up, and then Star Wars kind of has a universe. Truly franchises now, and they they have a plan for like the next five years. What movies Mm -hmm. are coming out? Yeah, Mm -hmm. TV shows. Yeah, right, right, and TV shows. Daredevil and Jessica Jones. Um, Wendy, uh, do they have comic books in? do they have Canadian comic books? Like, is there like a Canadian, <laughs> Canadian superhero? Are they- there is Alpha Flight. Alpha Flight is a Canadian uh, team from huh. in Marvel, and um, it's a yeah. There are a whole Canadian and Canadian. Actually, true? Wolverine was from Canada. Wolver- uh, that sounds yeah, right. That sounds and and then they have Holy a shit, right. and then they have a whole team called Alpha Flight, which are. Um, Canadian superheroes, and then like sometimes he goes and does things with them. Do they apologize a lot? <laughs> and is like is there, is there superpower or something to do with maple syrup? Or a maple no, but they like they turn shirts. into kind of like you know snow mm-hmm. creatures and like <laughs> and, and like yeah northern spirit kind of yeah yeah exactly. Okay, yeah, 
Labatt's. Mm-hmm. Did uh, not know that. <laughs> yeah, they have big maple leaves on their. Um, they do on their costumes. I was yeah. joking about that. It's no, they really that. do. Because apparently, only maple leaves, maple trees, only exist in Canada. Right? <laughs> well, they want it look like the Canadian flag. I know, I know. The red maple leaf. Yeah. But so, so in Canada, are there like is there like a DC of Canada or Mar- or Marvel or like? You know? Um, you know, I'm probably gonna be kicked out of the country for saying this. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to be kicked out of Canada, or I'm going to lose my citizenship over this, but I don't really know the answer to that, Kyle, and now he's writing notes. Um, There's probably some... He's going to report you. Probably some indies, indie comics. Yeah, I think Drawn Drawn and Quarterly is a Canadian Hmm. publisher, I Um, believe. Rachel clearly knows the most about comics. I know a lot of stuff about (laughs) comics. Yeah. I mean, but when I was growing up, I didn't really read a lot of comics, comic books, only... Only Archie, I have to admit. What about there was a comic, comic book character, called Wendy, who was a witch. Oh, uh, Casper's friend. Yeah. Yes. Oh, oh, she was awesome. Yeah, she yeah. is. That I also yes. read that. Yes. But I uh, would think you might. <laughs> <laughs> but not 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 a lot of uh, the superhero ones. Mm. Um, yeah, and mostly when I was growing up, I did uh, animes. So, mm. but not mangas, just animes. I read a lot of Mad Magazine, but I'm not sure I should admit oh, to yes. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, good. I'm not the only one. It's a, gu- it's a guilty pleasure. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really want to like, go back and buy some of the old ones, and, like, you know, but there's a lot of, you know, yeah, it's had, really infantile. Yeah, it's in, I'm sure it's infantile. Yeah, I had a huge stack when I was a kid. I don't, I don't have now, but I read a lot of them. Yeah. So we, that's, that's how we learned. <laughs> right. Um, got my twisted sense of humor from. Parody. Okay, so, mm-hmm. so getting back to, you know, talking about uh, leaving one's country of citizenship. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on the presidential election coming up? Uh, mm. from a, 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 so, by the way, this is UX of North America. From not, the UX not, perspective. Not particularly any, the United States necessarily. Uh, but, but anyway, what, uh, I'm curious for the U.S. citizens here, uh, and du- you have a dual citizenship, mm-hmm. uh, Robert. What are, what are your thoughts on the presidential election so far? And, and if... <laughs> If Trump becomes president, will you leave the United States? Where, where to begin? Um, I I have dual citizenship, so I could, you know. Uh, but I've actually thought, you know, if Trump were to become president, I, I got to stay for a while and see what's what's going on. You know, if you if you had the zombie apocalypse, do you really want to leave immediately, or do you want to kind of hang out and see what's going on? I mean, it's going to be pretty impressive to watch what unfolds to some degree. So I don't know that I'd leave the country immediately. But I really don't know where to begin. I really am a political junkie, and I love politics, and I love talking about it. But this is the far and away the most bizarre election I've ever seen in my life. Um, and I've seen a few at my age. Uh, but the fact that I think Trump, as many people are talking about, throws all the rules out, and you cannot predict if what he says is going to help him or hurt him, um, it's really astonishing. And I think you could probably, a measure of it is his celebrity, that it's given him a huge advantage so that he can say things that other politicians wouldn't say um, that's allowed him to proceed. And, and certainly the sentiments that he's tapping into um, are representative of some percentage of people that are now uh, feel justified <laughs> in having those beliefs, I guess. But um, Just as an aside, are you uh, a fan of Hunter S. Thompson? Yes. Because I, I uh-huh. you know, like... I wish he was alive I mean, to write about this election. Say. Yeah, because yeah. there was some weird shit apparently that went on, like you know, yeah. in the seventies. Like, sure, really, really bizarre, yeah. early seventies, bizarre, like campaign trail of seventy-two or something. Yeah, fear like and loathing on the campaign of seventy-two. Oh yeah, but uh, but that 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 seems to pale in comparison to what's going on now. 
It really seems like a lot of other elections would have been pretty boring. I mean, if you go back to, what was it, Kerry? I think that was the first election I was allowed to vote in. And who was he running against at the time? I've got a terrible memory. Um, w. Uh, was it W? Uh, that seems like such a boring everyday election yeah. uh, compared to what we're seeing this year. It, or, or it's, Gore versus Bush. Yeah, yeah. Even the level of decorum or lack thereof in the debates is astonishing, you know, and, and things like that. But like I say, it's kind of hard to know where to begin. Maybe Rachel has some thoughts. How about you, Rachel? I mean, I, well, so first of all, I think if Trump wins the election, there's probably not even much point in leaving the country <laughs> because nowhere in the world will be safe. Um, but uh, I also what you said about Hunter S. Thompson made me think like maybe this election will help us figure out who the new Hunter S. Thompson is maybe someone <laughs> will emerge as that voice uh, because it definitely begs for commentary on Absolutely. that level are there, um, are there any contenders out there that you, you know of that are writing interesting stuff in well, I think a lot of like John Oliver's commentary has yes. been really mm -hmm. funny um, and and insightful, but I don't know if it it's not like obviously exclusively about that. Um, but yeah, I think things like that, like the commentary coming out of The Daily Show and um, Samantha B, and you know those those uh, type of reporter slash entertainers are so used to kind of. Um, grasping hold of the hypocrisy and exposing it and um, you know this is obviously like a, a, a very uh, ripe time for them to be able to practice those kinds of mm -hmm. things. Well, I, I think we're in interesting times when like the, 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 the best insights seem to come from comedians. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And there are a few writers out there I mean the first one that came to my mind I know there are others but this guy Jeb Lund who writes under the name of Butte on um, Twitter he's very Hunter S. Thompson-ish um, very you typically have to take a lot of his tweets as tongue in cheek um, but when he writes long form he's incredibly incisive and kind of in that sort of bizarro gonzo way as well. Uh, and there are other writers out there like there. None of them of that Hunter S. Thompson level, of course, but he's he's in that vein for sure. Sorry, how do you spell it? Butte. M M O B U T E is his Twitter handle, and uh, Jeb Lund L U N D. Okay. Wendy, so you're you're Canadian. Yes. Uh, as we've discussed earlier, uh, so what what are your thoughts on this? I mean, so you have you have like a, like a socialist government right now, right? And, and they just want to, yeah. Yeah. Well, how do they react? Um, you know, I think it's just uh, everybody just kind of kind of sees it as entertainment right now. Um, obviously, if, until there's a nuclear war. And, until there's a nuclear war, because then nobody is safe, as Rachel said. Um, but you know, I, I I grew up in Canada, so this whole experience is very strange for me. The fact that you know somebody like Trump would even be considered as mm -hmm. somebody who could lead such a huge country and have access to so many things that he probably should not have access to. Right, like I'm fine with him having like a, a franchise of steakhouses. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right, I'm exactly. Okay with his finger on the button. You, know, you don't like want his finger on the button. Ball, you know, yeah. like no, you don't want him writing executive orders. <laughs> okay, awesome. So, um, so real quickly, we're, we're almost out of time, but um, Rob, you were in uh, Valencia, Spain recently. Um, could you tell us a little bit about um, your experience at the uh, Internet Freedom Festival. 
Yeah, the Internet Freedom Festival was very cool. Um, I got to go there for the first time, and they kind of have a focus on privacy, security, and surveillance, and especially, of course, as it relates to the web. So there are a lot of people there from different companies that work on some of this privacy and security-related um, stuff. So, you know, for example, a Tor browser. There are people from Tor there. Um, uh, there are people from a lot of other organizations that focus on human rights or uh, rights for journalists, actually, um, also LGBT groups. Um, uh, anybody who has an interest in human rights, especially from you know the the perspective of security and privacy and surveillance, and a lot of that stuff affects people in other countries, of course, but also affects us here in the United States. Whether it's journalists wanting to make sure they've got the freedom to communicate with their sources and not have to give up their sources and track their information and not be afraid of the government hacking in to see what they're writing and a lot of other things like that. The classic example right now, of course, is. Um, Glenn Greenwald uh, and all the writing he's done and the collaboration he did with Snowden and the Snowden leaks. Um, and if I happen to be reading the book right now too, um, which I think is called Nowhere to Hide. Um, but anyway, uh, it's about all, it, it details all he had to do from a privacy and security perspective and how he had to learn how to use encrypted email to communicate with Snowden. So this whole conference uh, touched on all of these sort of issues and it had tracks like um, community relations and uh, LGBT and gender uh, and human rights and journalism and technology and uh, you could pursue any one of these or all of them to your desire. And I helped organize a community um, and communications track and also went to a lot of these different things. And it was really fascinating because it does overlap heavily with UX, um, especially in the sense that a lot of the times it's very small groups developing these apps um, for communicating, say, in, with encrypted chat. And so they don't have a UX designer. They may not even have a designer designer. <laughs> they might be just a single developer working on a great idea. And so they really benefit from people like us donating our time and energy to help them. So, yeah, it was really exciting to go there and, and to meet people from countries all over the world involved in some of this stuff. Um. So in that kind of community, do you think there is a gender imbalance there? Uh, yeah, there often is. Um, I will say and give credit to the IFF, uh, Internet Freedom Festival, that they went out of their way to make sure from a speaking perspective that it was divided up quite evenly and not just along gender lines but along you know sexual orientation and um, ethnicity and everything like that as well. They went to some lengths to do that. I know from a gender perspective, I think it was pretty much 50-50. Attendance, I couldn't tell you. I think it's it was a fairly good mix, but I don't have data on that, per se. But yeah, I mean, that in general, <laughs> yes, it's an issue, I'm sure. Okay, so I just have like a minute left. I wanted to uh, just talk about Tribeca Film Festival. We're skipping around here mm. like crazy, but anyway. So, um, so I guess the question, so have, have have you been to the Tribeca Film Festival? I saw one movie a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw that. You did? The Steve Aoki? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Did you go to his the premiere? Oh, I was there, too. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. <laughs> did you stay for the... It was at Beacon Theater. It was yeah. huge. Yeah, exactly. Did you stay for the show? Yeah. It was oh, good, yeah. 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 I was kind of disappointed he didn't throw cake at anybody. Uh, that's yeah. I thought it would have been fun, but it was Beacon Theater, and maybe they didn't. The system has detected that a minimum number of lines are connected to this conference. (laughs) Okay, uh, system. Someone just jumped in. That was a robot. Sorry. They're listening. But um, 
yeah, I, th I, I, um, I like that movie a lot. I mean, I didn't, it's not really my kind of music, but his story is very, very interesting. Yeah, same here. Yeah, and I love that, you know, his mom came on stage at the end. That was really sweet. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. What, what did you see, Rachel, beyond that? Um, I saw a great film from New Zealand that I really like called Hunt for the Wilder People. Um, that was very sweet. Um, and I think that opens in New York in June, so I recommend it. Uh, and then I saw, uh, towards the end, some really good documentaries. There was one, actually, Wendy, you would probably like this, called, um, oh, man. It had a very long name. It was called, like, Shot the, uh, what was it? The Psycho-Spiritual Mantra of Rock. And it was um, about this photographer, Mick Rock, who he had uh, started out in the, like, I guess in the 70s, taking a lot of photos of, like, David Bowie and Lou Reed and just, like, continued to take pictures of musicians. And he just, he took a lot of, like, the really iconic images of these guys and of, um, like, a lot of photo, uh, photos that ended up on album covers. And, and then he had kind of, like, a downward spiral for a little while. And now he, and then he's kind of come back into doing rock photography. But it was um, less like a typical documentary and more like a kind of a memoir-slash-essay uh, piece. And it was, it definitely made me want to, like, pick up a film camera again afterwards. And I was like, oh. Even though I love taking pictures and I mostly do digital now, like coming come back, like yeah, it was like oh look at like what you can do with film. It was it was kind of cool. We might show that one here. How about you, Robbie? Have you checked out anything in Tribeca? Yeah, um, I saw a few, uh, probably about five, and there were three that really resonated with me. Um, the final night we saw the international narrative winner, and that was called Junction Forty Eight. Uh, it was it was really interesting. It, um, it wasn't perfect, but, but it was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, it was basically this uh, Palestinian hip-hop artist um, trying to break through into the mainstream, and it was set up against the Arab-Israeli conflict and everything that was going on I mean, in Israel-Palestine. And I thought what they did a really good job of was seamlessly integrating the hip-hop music into it. And I've listened to some of that music before, but I had no idea what they were singing about, so it was really cool. The subtitles, you could see how a lot of the music was mapped to what was going on in the story at the same time. And that could be done really badly, but it was done really well and uh, really enjoyed that. Um, I watched a documentary called Team Foxcatcher, which was a follow-up, uh, I guess, in a way, to that movie called Foxcatcher about um, John DuPont, um, who had lots of money and therefore sponsored a wrestling team and had them living oh, yeah. on his property and everything. Yeah. That was fascinating and very um, creepy story. Um, that added a lot of detail that the movie didn't have. And finally, overlapping a lot with my interest, uh, coincidentally, in surveillance and everything and uh, human rights, uh, there was a movie that I really recommend, a documentary called Do Not Resist, that I happened to get to see because it was the documentary winner. And this was about the militarization of the police in the United States. And so um, it followed around uh, the, the documentary team was actually embedded in, in many cases, if you will, followed along with um, the police in those areas, including places like Ferguson and, um, and here in New York and some other places, South Carolina, and actually went on um, uh, SWAT team runs and saw how they worked. And they're leveraging a SWAT team, for example, and a giant 
armored vehicle against um, a kid with a little bit of pot in his backpack. Uh, and so it was talking about how on earth did we get to this point, and it also went at the end into forms of surveillance that the police are using now. So if they're driving along, not only can they recognize your license plate on your car, they can recognize your face and pull up a record and, and things of that nature. So it was tremendously well done, very even-handed for a, a documentary that was obviously critical of this subject. It was still very even-handed, and, and I very much recommend it. Mm -hmm. I, I want to uh, recommend one more, which was uh, called My Scientology Movie, and it was a BBC production. Uh, it was like it was sort of like a kind of part documentary, part like investigative journalism, but um, it was really funny. And um, if you are interested in some of the weirdness of Scientology, it was uh, it was very uh, well done, and in particular showing like how. Scientology reacted to the fact that they were making this documentary. It was hmm. kind of uh, fascinating. Yeah, you know, um, I'm a big, uh, big fan of Beck. Um, mm -hmm. So if I ever do karaoke, I do Beck. Mm -hmm. um, but I also feel like maybe like there might be some subliminal programming. In it. <laughs> well, I think he's a lapsed Scientologist, right? He's one of the. Oh, is he lapsed? He, he's well, he is. I think technically, but he was born into a Scientologist family, like, like, so can you be lapsed? maybe don't they, don't they come after you? And, I think. And well, you've got to well, see this movie to understand because they they do talk to several lapsed people and they talk about what happens. They try to, to keep you from lapsed people. people. Oh, he's not okay. lapsed in that sense, but I think he kind of has a okay, shrug. So they don't hunt you, know, you down. Kind of has a shruggy okay. kind of approach to Scientology, from what I've read. Perhaps because he didn't adopt it, he grew up within it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. He did not that, adopt that, it. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. All right. That makes me feel much better about being a fan. So uh, we're we're out of time. I want to thank our special guests, uh, Rachel Levinger and Robert Stribley, for being on the first ever episode of UX of America, and also wanted to thank my co-host with the mostest, uh, Wendy Lau, and. Uh, Hopefully, uh, you guys will join us again sometime, and uh, if we don't completely get flamed by internet trolls. Uh, <laughs> until then, uh, thanks for listening. Thank you both. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to today's User Experience of America podcast episode. And remember, don't hate for you, iterate. <laughs>